Welcome back, everyone, to episode 11 of the Dice Pirates podcast. This episode, we're going to be bringing you another triple header, but with a theme this time. We're going to be talking about three games that work really well with two people, whether those are specifically two-player games or whether they scale down well to two players. We're going to go ahead and cover a bunch of those. We also have a very exciting thing going on. We're going to be doing a giveaway of Bluff and Ears, a game that we talked about recently and both really enjoyed. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for some details on how to get in on that. As always, I am your Captain Ian, joined by the prisoner that we pulled up from the brig, Matt. How's it going, Matt? Uh, I'm really upset about my imprisonment. I think that we all know that it was uh, trumped up charges that were uh, frankly uh, untrue and unfair. Uh, that fire started itself. I think we all know that. That fire started itself. I mean, the fire may have started itself, but you were the one spreading it around the deck. I mean, look, look, lean, lean in here. There's a big insurance payment on this boat. All right. We're, we got to turn a profit on this somehow. This we're, <laughs> <laughs> Look, we, just quietly, we're going to file a big insurance claim. You got to go with me on this. That's probably the smartest play at this point. I mean, we're not very good pirates. Let's, we've established that by now. No. We should focus on the dice and not the pirates. I think, that, I think that's what we're best at. Um, speaking of dice, I want to get into our soapbox section. And I would actually like to talk about Sushi Go. Now, this is a game that we have talked about before. But in the spirit of our two-player episode, I want to talk about playing Sushi Go with two people. I played, actually, several games of it with my wife lately. And... I was fascinated by how it changes the game. So if you're unfamiliar with Sushi Go, a quick brief outline, it is a card drafting game where each player will get a certain number of cards. It's normally around eight to 10, depending on how many people are playing. And you will draft a card and then you will pass it on to the next player basic mechanics and that's the, that's the whole game you do that over three different rounds normally because you'll have four five people depending on how many people have playing there will be a fair amount of the deck that's been passed out and so it's a probability game i can play this because i know there's probably going to be another one of them coming out can i go for some high points even if other people might go for them but playing it with two people is so different because the second turn you know every single card that's in the game there's no guesswork and there's so few cards going out at once. So it becomes less of a probability game and more of a like one-on-one -on -one kind of psychological game. Because do you take the card that's kind of worthless, but they're going for it? Or do you try and delay and go for your cards? Like, how do you play around that? What's your strategy? It changes the game in a fundamental way. It's really fascinating. It's still fun. I love doing it. But I was not expecting how much decreasing the player count would change that game yeah i when you were telling me about uh that i was fascinated by it because okay here's my experience of playing sushi go i do not have a head for like numbers and probability so when we're playing it i'm just totally going on instinct we're usually playing it with four to five people with our standard game group so when i send my hand of cards around i have no idea what's coming and i can't think in terms of like Okay, how many edamame cards are usually in the setup or whatever? So I have no sense of that. So it's just totally, I'm just like, it's blind luck. I don't know what's coming. But playing with one other person, you're right. After a couple of passes back and forth, 
you know how many uh you know exactly what's at the game and how many of a card are and it i feel like it would also turn really quickly into a take that situation where i mean you know somebody's going for something in particular because they keep taking it so do you want to like take from them what they're clearly going for for a scoring strategy or give them junk that you know they don't need it can get it it could probably get a little nasty in a two-player game Oh, it immediately, immediately goes down that route because you know that if you don't take that card, they're going to go ahead and score 20 points just because they were able to play the two biggest cards in their hand and you couldn't do anything about it. So yeah, it immediately becomes a take that game. You take it just because you know there's only two, there's only two Tempura left. And if you take one of them, they're going to be screwed. So yeah, no, it, it, it's such a different play. And if they have Sushi Go and you've never played it with two people, I would give it a shot because it's fascinating maybe you'll enjoy it i i certainly did that's really interesting you don't talk, you don't talk about games that like scale down and how it changes them a lot of times the question is like how big can you get a game is it good at like four players is it good at five and some games even if the box says like five players it doesn't really it's not at its peak you know with four or five so you, you tend to think about games in terms of like does it scale up but like does it scale down it's and i've never thought about playing sushi go two-player because it is it's almost a party game in my mind absolutely yeah no sushi go definitely is i think one of the quintessential like party card games to have especially when you get the large box so that's what i want to talk about matt what do you have for us this week all right i'm gonna come up on the soapbox and uh, buckle up because we're going for it uh, I want to talk about a controversy that has erupted on uh, the Board Game Geek forums uh, in the last couple of days, and it just kind of like stuck with me so much that even though we don't usually get very, uh, I don't know, into like heavier topics outside of gaming, I want to kind of talk kind of a little bit about this issue because I think it affects the gaming community in a big way. So, Tiny Epic Dungeons is the current hot thing in all of board gaming. It's uh, number one on the hotness list right now. Board Game Geek is raised thousands upon thousands of dollars on Kickstarter in a short amount of time. It's the latest one from Gamblin Games where they cram big box themes and concepts into a tiny package. Very portable little uh, small box games that are often very affordable. And the Tiny Epic Games have... uh, you know, really been justifiably quite popular and praised because they're inexpensive. They're oftentimes quite deep for being such uh, teensy little games. And Tiny Epic Dungeons was, it felt inevitable. I just, I knew that they were going to do a dungeon crawl eventually. So when this dropped, I got to admit, I was very excited and was following the development of the game. I actually posted about it a couple of times on the Dice Pirates Instagram account. Well, a few days ago, there was a, a, a thread started by Elizabeth Hargrave on Board Game Geek. And if you don't know that name, you uh, definitely know her uh, most well-known game, which is Wingspan. She's a game designer. She was the designer behind Wingspan and Mariposa. I love that she is uh, carving out uh, a niche here in gaming of uh, beautiful games about things with the wings. And uh, Elizabeth made a post with the simple heading of, can we talk about the women on the box cover? And uh, she basically said, you know, what is up with the design of these female characters? There are four protagonists in this game, two men and two women. And on the cover, we see the two male characters charging into battle. There's a dwarf and a big orc looking dude heading uh, into combat with a bunch of goblins and creepy things in the shadows. And then there's the two female characters, like a wizard and a rogue. And uh, the female character is in what could be generously described as the boob butt pose. 
turned inexplicably backwards from uh, the enemy and peeking over her shoulder in a seductive gaze, twisted so that we make sure we get a, a maximum look at her anatomy. And the rogue is, you know, standing in the shadows like rogues do, but there's a spotlight coming down, just making sure that we get just enough of a look at her exposed cleavage. And so she simply said in her post, you know, what, what's up with this? Why are we still posing characters in these uh, horrible tropes? Why are we still relying on these uh, images that are clearly designed for the male gaze? And the gaming community on BoardGameGeek has responded in a quite divisive manner. There's been a lot of people who are uh, in agreement that, you know, yeah, this is something we need to take a look at. And this is not great. And there's been a lot of people that have... Uh, you know, counter-argued that in a respectful way, but there's been an upsetting number of people who have been totally dismissive of this and even potentially abusive. And there have been a lot of people banned and a lot of comments deleted. I don't want to make this into a big rant about uh, censorship or anything, but I did want to point out two things about this controversy that have stuck with me. One is that when I first looked at the Tiny Epic Dungeons cover, because I was absolutely thrilled about this game, it hits all of my sweet spots. Dungeons, dungeons, more dungeons. So I was like, yeah, this game is going to be great. I definitely want to look into it. I never noticed the issues of the cover. It glossed right by them. But when she pointed them out in her post, Elizabeth Hargrave, I looked at it with a new set of eyes and I was like, oh yeah, this is really, this is problematic. This is not great stuff. And it occurred to me how if you're somebody that's grown up like I have, playing a lot of fantasy themed games, watching fantasy movies and books and video games and all of that, you just become a nerd uh, to certain imagery. You've seen it so many times that it just washes over you like so much water, you know. I, I, we're used to female characters being posed in certain ways, wearing certain kinds of armor and costumes, and being designed in this way, and you've come to accept it as just a part of the genre. It's just, it's fantasy. This is how things are. And you don't think, like, what is this projecting? How does this make somebody feel that's coming into the hobby with a different mindset and a different perspective than you? And it's so good, I think, for somebody like Elizabeth Hargrave to come in and point out with fresh eyes, what's up with this? Why are we Why are we doing this? Is this welcoming? Is this making everyone feel respected? Is this making everyone feel included, you know, when we, we use images like this? And I think that's really, really vital because for those of us that have been in the hobby a long time, we're just not, we can't see the forest for the trees, you know, we can't pull back enough and see it for what it is. And so I really appreciated the post. I think it's really important. And I think it points to something that's happening across this whole hobby of like tabletop gaming and role playing. We talk a lot on this podcast about the so-called golden age of board gaming that we're in. And part of that is that golden age where there's more great games coming out, more high quality games and more interest in board gaming is that more people are coming to the table to play that haven't always done so. And I think that it's really high time that we take a look at the imagery, at the themes, at the way representation is uh, included in this. And uh, I, I think the discussion was great. And I think what it made me uh, realize is just kind of like as, as my own self, just taking like a more critical look at how I'm perceiving things and am I really aware of how some of this stuff makes other people feel. The second point I wanted to make is, you know, I don't want to make this into some kind of like long diatribe about cancel culture and all this nonsense that we're living in. But 
It bothers me when some of the responses to somebody bringing up a criticism like this are to totally dismiss it. And I just want to make the point that just because a problem is invisible to you, it doesn't mean it's not a problem. And that's something that I think we have to uh, really be sensitive to as uh, gamers of a certain age and a certain demographic that like we're oblivious oftentimes to, to some of the shortcomings in our medium, in this medium. And so when something is pointed out, just because you didn't see a problem there, don't freak out and don't try to silence those critics. Instead, try to pull back and say like, okay, what am I not seeing here? And that's what I think was the benefit of this discussion. And I think it was a really healthy one. And as a part of this, if you dig into this thread on BoardGameGeek, you'll see some really thoughtful comments and some people pointing out that there are publishers and artists in board games right now that are doing really good things to try to change the perception of people and how they're drawn and how they're depicted. There was a great example of the cover of the board game Clank, a fantastic fantasy dungeon-themed adventure. Hits all the same high points and and themes and style stuff that Tiny Epic Dungeons is going for. And on the cover, you have the same thing. Four characters, two men, two women, on an adventure in a dungeon, running away from a dragon. But they're all depicted equally, right? In the sense that they all have armor that's practical and of the same make and style. They're also all engaged in what's happening in the theme, right? They're all like running away from the dragon. They've all got stuff in their arm. The female characters aren't inexplicably posing while the male characters are acting. And that's a really important distinction, right? Because that tiny epic dungeon cover, you have the male characters are free to act and be powerful and the women are posing, to be looked at and they're not actually doing anything and so there are artists there are publishers out there that are making an effort to modernize these uh these thematic games to make them more inclusive of all genders and different types of people and i think that's really important i think this is a really healthy discussion i think this is kind of a it may feel like a reckoning to some people and as a result it may feel threatening but i think we just have to pull back and uh, take a healthy look because at the end of the day we all love tabletop gaming. We want this hobby to grow. We want more people to come to the table and enjoy it. But to do that, we got to make sure it's the most welcoming space that it can be. I 100% agree. I'm really glad you brought it up because it is a discussion that really needs to happen. And like you said, this is a space that is supposed to be inclusive and something that you're supposed to be able to do with friends and family and the people that you're going to be close to. And having these tropes and these situations that keep coming up is is just damaging. And yeah, I mean, there are plenty of examples. Like you, you mentioned Clank, all of the art in the Call to Adventure games is fantastic and does an amazing job of being very sensitive towards those things as well and not falling into those same tropes, which you could so easily do, being a completely fantasy-based game that's built around creating a character. It could fall into that so easily, but it avoids that. And so much of it is just about being very intentional like when you think about the art that goes onto the front of a board game, that has to be approved between the developer and the artist many, many times. And the fact that this was able to get through that many iterations just speaks to how either unwilling some people are to change or just how blind a lot of people are to the problem. And I'm glad that there is some discussion being had around that. Yeah, I think the unaware part of it is, I mean, to give... Gamelin, I guess, as much of a benefit of the doubt as we can, not knowing their creative process. I think being unaware and not having uh, a diversity of people involved in a decision-making process is something that can lead to something like that. The other thing I would point out, too, is there really have been 
more strides recently about inclusion in games and representation, both in art style and the diversity of characters and people you see in games. And I think it's because of that, that when something is kind of regressive, when it's kind of going back to those old tropes, it stands out all the more. And I think that's why this controversy has kind of erupted. You know, gaming's come a long way. If you go back and look at the game art and the art and like role playing from like the 80s and the 70s, I mean, we we have made progress both in uh, like racial diversity and uh, gender equity and how things are drawn, but there's still room for progress. And the thing we have to be most sensitive to is our own tendency to just let some of these images kind of wash over us and not think about them critically and then not get defensive when somebody does raise a really valid concern. And so I don't know. I think the odds of Elizabeth Hargrave actually hearing this are incredibly low, but I would just say, I thank you for bringing that discussion to the table. I think that's really healthy. To Gambling Games credit, they uh, have modified the box art a bit. They've covered up the rogue a bit, and they've tried to sort of diminish some of the things. But they, I think, were past the point in the design phase where they could change the pose on these characters. So it's not great, but they've made some attempt, some concession. The biggest thing in terms of where Gamelin moves, I think, with this is going to be if they make any changes moving forward. Because, of course, I mean, this was a very recent thing. It's only been a couple of days since this came, and so it's hard to make that turnaround. But despite just the cover art, a lot of the character designs and especially some of the expansion characters that they have that are as equally problematic have not been changed because they were not as front-facing. And so I think moving forward, if they are willing to look at themselves and do more extensive reworks on things and actually pay attention to the underlying issues and not just the ones that people were talking about, I think it's going to be very emblematic of whether or not they were actually listening. Yeah. And then I think this whole discussion, just to kind of close it out, is going to be good for games overall. This has been a pretty, you know, within the relatively small world of board gaming uh, forums, this has been a pretty hot button event, gotten a lot of attention. And I think it will be a wake-up call for a lot of other publishers to think more critically about their art process and design process and what are they putting out there in the world and are they representing the diversity of their potential customer base uh, in the best way possible. Anyway, that's my soapbox. I'm going to get down the soapbox so we can get on to some uh, reviews and some other things. But I will tease, if you stick with us to the end of the podcast, uh, after we get done with our uh, review portion today, we're going to have a uh, quick off-topic discussion of the show WandaVision, which Ian and I have been uh, obsessing over, like so many of you, over the past few weeks. And we're going to attempt a kind of a game. We're going to guess what we think is going to happen in the finale. This is being recorded a day before. And uh, by the time this airs, you'll get to see how right or embarrassingly wrong we were. So that should be fun. I'm also excited for that because I'm not sure what you think is going to happen yet. But we'll have to get through our main discussion first. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right into it. All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates. We're going to jump into our main topic today, which is another Dice Pirates triple header. We're going to take a look at three games today. We're going to give you kind of quick reviews of some games we've been playing, and uh, all three of these games are great for two players. Uh, a lot of games uh, scale up, and there's a lot of games that are made for a group, but not every game is balanced or fun when you're playing uh, one-on-one with somebody. And so we thought it'd be fun to take a look at three relatively simple quick to play games that are good for two players and we're going to start our discussion today with uh, a 2020 release glasgow from lookout games so ian this was a game that you uh introduced me to so why don't you give us a quick breakdown about glasgow Absolutely. 
So Glasgow is a game that is designed for two players. You cannot play with more than that. You cannot play it by yourself. And it is essentially a city building game where you are working together to build a city grid. You are essentially merchants that are tasked with rebuilding the city of Glasgow and bringing it into the modern era. And to do so, you construct buildings, whether they be factories that produce, whether they be gardens that will beautify the area, monuments that will help bring people in, things like that. So you're tasked with doing this. The the game is is really interesting because it is, you know, a city builder and it, it's very similar to, you know, games like um, Between Two Castles uh, of Mad King Ludwig and uh, it's similar to games, you know, like um, Castles of uh, Burgundy and Tuscany and the way that you're putting things next to each other and things are spreading out. But the very interesting part of the game comes from the movement mechanic. So in this game, you are collecting resources. Resources are used to build these buildings. And the process of getting these resources, you move around the track. So the way that this game is structured is you you're, the actions are all spread out in a circle around the playing area where you're building your city. And you can move as far around the circle as you want. But the catch is that the person who gets to play is the person who is further behind. So... I can go halfway across the circle and I can skip six or seven actions if I really want that one action. But that does mean that the other player will potentially get five or six turns before I get to go again. So you have a real give and take here where you want to try and hit these actions that are super powerful. You want to make sure that you're getting your process going forward and you don't give up the things that you need. Well, at the same time, making sure that you're not giving your opponent too much free space because you can get some crazy chain reactions moving forward. So, uh, Matt, we've only played this a couple times, but it's one that is that it's pretty fun. Like, it's got a really fun gameplay loop. The movement mechanic is a little bit unique, and I haven't really seen anywhere else, and that makes for some kind of interesting strategy. And the gameplay itself is, is not too bad. This game actually completely surprised me. It seems like it's really flying under the radar. Like I said, this came out just last year, and I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it. I haven't seen it in discussions, but uh, we ended up picking it up, and I thought it was pretty great. The two things that I think are distinct about it is that, one, it is made for two players, which is really – you don't see that a lot. I mean, a lot of games scale down to two. Uh, but to have a game that's specifically designed for two is really uh, unique, and it is it means that it's just really well balanced for that dynamic. Uh, there's nothing about the game that's just out of whack when you bring it down to two players. It's just perfectly designed for that experience. Uh, it's also a really great like simplified Euro. It's basically a worker placement game. You're you're moving your little worker guy around. You're collecting resources. You're spending them to take uh, actions and acquire the t- the city tiles. You know, classic Euro game stuff, but it's all very simple. I think this is a really good gateway game to like heavier Euros, teaching people to think strategically about like building up your resources and spending them smartly, or also thinking in terms of combos, because there's interesting scoring patterns that can occur when you place tiles out into the city and uh, can score based on like their placement in relation to others, or those factory spaces, which are really unique. You place these factories out, and then they trigger when another tile is placed in their row or their column, and then all of a sudden you can set up these combos where it's like, oh, I get this bonus because I placed this tile, and that sets me up for the future. So there's a surprising amount of depth there, but it's all very simple to grasp. 
But the thing that really sold the game to me was this movement thing, because you're moving your little uh, meeple around this circular track that you construct on the board, and it's modular, so it's not the same every time that you play it. Because you can move as far as you want on your turn, but your opponent can then take successive turns until they pass you, there's a huge risk-reward mechanic that I've never seen before in a game. Uh, you might want to jump real far ahead and go after a piece that go after a, a space that's really valuable to you because you need that resource or there's a bonus there that's just going to be perfect for you. But if you leave too much of a gap between you and your opponent, they can easily take three, four turns in a row. And that's brutal <laughs> to have to sit there and know that like, okay, if I jump ahead and I buy this tile, that's a big scoring move for me. But I'm going to give my opponent four opportunities potentially to, to move, that's a huge risk-reward that you've got to balance. I've never seen anything like that in a game before. I thought that was really unique and really special. It's a very different mechanic that I think makes the game way better than it would have been otherwise. You're right, there really has not been a lot of talk about this game. I think there are two reasons for that overall. And while it is you know decently reviewed on BGG, it's also got some problems with it. And I think one of the first problems is the art style itself. Um, just the design and look of the game. It's fun to play, but honestly, the game is a little bit drab. Like, it's not super fun to look at, at least for me personally. The design of the city itself, the factories, the various buildings, they're a little bit distinct, but most of them are, are unless you're looking closely, they're not that distinguishable from another. Like, there's not a lot of pizzazz to them, and when that's most of what you're looking at, then... I feel like that needed to be a little bit more. It's just not the most visually engaging game, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But the other issue that I think hurts the game a little bit more is that of the several times I've played it, I've only had one game that was a close game. The rest of them have just been runaway blowouts. And because of the way that the scoring works, a lot of the scoring works, um, you know, with successive scoring, the more of a kind of building you get, the more points you get for it things of that nature. And because of the way that that works, if you have one person who's able to get a couple lucky breaks on what comes out and what they're able to build, you can have somebody that just pulls so far ahead. And uh, while it's really fun and you can have a competitive game, if both people play things right, you do have an issue with some people sometimes just really running away with the game. And that's not the, that's not the most fun thing in the world. So it's a great game, and I would definitely recommend it as a game, but there are some issues with it that I think prevent it from being a great game. You know, I'm going to disagree slightly on the art style. It actually threw me a little bit when we set it up because it does use a kind of cartoonist, like Saturday morning cartoon kind of vibe for the characters that's a little bit different. I don't know, maybe uh, a more realistic art style or like a painterly, more uh, artsy kind of look might have uh, been nicer. But the little cartoony uh, people kind of grew on me after a while. And the whole thing actually looks looked nice set up on the table once we got the uh, cityscape of Glasgow like all built out in the center. I mean, to kind of elaborate on it a little more, you know, you make this ring of uh, character tiles or, that kind of forms the track that you move your meeples on, and they represent like the artisans and architects that you visit. And then you place the city tiles in the middle and make this little grid. It's a very simple game. They're very simple components, but they looked they looked okay. I didn't hate it. I like I thought it was okay once it was all set up. I think it's very subjective, but it definitely is cartoony and as a result, I think it might look more like a kids game or a little lighter than it is. It's not a heavy game by any means, but it's it's thinky. It's a euro. 
So, I don't yeah. know. I mean, it, yeah, like you said, it's a very small, very quick-to-play Euro, which is, of course, if you're looking for that, it's great. The one thing that I do like about it a lot, and I do want to mention, is that the design of the player boards, and especially the resources that you are collecting, are fantastic. They are small little wooden steel, coins, bricks, and there is a small little barrel of whiskey as well that you can collect that is a wild resource. The component design of the resources is chef's kiss it's perfect and that's definitely the best part of the game i think i think yeah yeah i agree i think the little wooden components are fantastic uh they're fun to play with fun to hold good tactile thing uh the runaway leader thing i think is the most serious criticism to le- to level against this and part of that is just uh the game doesn't hold your hand and if you do make a mistake of in like your kind of judgment if you kind of bet big on a on a big move on the track to go after something and you set your opponent up to take lots of moves in a row i mean they could really like smoke you because of that that mechanic of uh well your opponent takes turns until they pass you on the track so if you're not thinking critically your opponent could get way ahead of you and there aren't really any catch-up mechanics there's nothing to slow down the leader uh, if somebody gets ahead, it's 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 over. Um, that's that's probably a valid criticism, but that's also kind of like you know if you're uh, you know a seasoned board gamer and you've got someone you can play this with who's fairly adept at games. I don't know that will be like a huge deal, but it's definitely something to think about, especially if you're trying to introduce this to like young gamers or you know as a gateway game for somebody that doesn't uh, play a lot of board games. That's a good point, and. I think, yeah, depending on who you're playing with will definitely influence whether this is a game you should bring out. It's a really fun game. It can be a little bit unforgiving at times, but does not make it a bad game whatsoever. I still very much enjoy it and would love to play it again. Speaking of games that can be unforgiving, I want to next talk about Nations the Dice Game that was released in 2014 by Stronghold Games. Uh, Matt, can you go ahead and uh, elaborate on how this game works real quick? Sure, I will. I will elaborate on it. Uh, I want you to first imagine your sixth grade uh, world history textbook, what it looked like, what the illustrations look like, and then imagine that someone turned that into a game. That's what Nations is. It looks like a history textbook that someone's turned into a game. It's got the most comically bland uh, illustrations that I think I've ever seen. Uh, Nations the Dice Game and its big box uh, Nations board game are both sort of uh, notorious for their uh, remarkably bland uh, art of historical figures and places. but. Within that, uh, looking past that bland art, there's actually a really great dice game that is quick to play and surprisingly deep. Basically, uh, how this works is that you are going to roll dice, uh, a handful of dice on your turn, and then spin those dice to buy tiles uh, that represent uh, historical figures that you can use as leaders or technological innovations like uh, samurai or or elephants that you can mount or uh, steamships as you move through the ages, or they represent wonders. These uh, uh, great uh, wondrous creations that you can add to your civilization that will score you victory points at the end of the game. So you buy tiles and uh, add them to your uh, little player board uh, as you acquire them. Or you can hold on to some of these dice to try to mitigate the war and the famine that will come in between rounds. And that's basically the game. Roll dice, spin them. Uh, You can strategically re-roll using re-roll tokens that you'll acquire. Or reserve the dice that you need to to try to mitigate the effect of the coming war and famine. And uh, within that, though, within those relatively simple rules, there's like a tremendous amount of depth. The first thing that kind of uh, mixes things up is that as you acquire uh, these tiles, you can add dice to your dice pool, add or replace them. 
So you get uh, different colored dice with different uh, types of resources on each face. Uh, so this can let you specialize in different directions. You can get more red die with swords if you want to be more proactive about trying to win the war in between each round. Uh, or you can get uh, yellow or blue, which have uh, different uh, emphases on uh, construction or knowledge, which is a whole other strange economy in this game. So you can acquire more dice as you acquire different tiles, which can kind of customize how you want to play the game. You can also acquire leaders and other bonuses that add uh, little tokens to your pool, which give you permanent bonuses. So instead of having to roll for food or a sword, you might permanently have one every round. Or you might get a, t a token that lets you get an additional reroll. And these little tokens become really powerful. So you start out the game feeling kind of paltry and not really feeling like you can control your destiny very much. And then as it goes on, you have a lot more ability to kind of mitigate luck, either through rerolls or through having these tokens that give you guaranteed resources. So there's a surprising sense of like arc, like your civilization is getting uh, more powerful as, uh, as you go through successive rounds. The other thing to kind of understand, too, is how this, uh, this war, famine, and knowledge thing plays out. In between rounds, you measure who has the most uh, knowledge, who's acquired the most books in each round. And whoever's uh, first place in the knowledge track scores a point for everyone behind them. So getting ahead early and holding on to the lead can mean that you're scoring yeah, uh, points every round for being uh, the most uh, knowledgeable race. And then there's a war and a famine that you have to mitigate. If you have enough uh, reserved food tokens or food dice or enough reserved swords, you can uh, win the war or overcome the famine, in which case you score some points. But of course, reserving your dice to try to do that means that you're maybe not buying as many tiles. So there's some real tension about how you approach those choices. I love this game. I feel like there are so many like rich and like nuanced choices in it. And there's that remarkable sense of progression that it gives you. Because like I said, at the very beginning, you just you feel like there's very few options in front of you on your turn. You feel like the war and the famine are like overwhelming. And then all of a sudden, as you start to acquire a few more things, your technology improves, you get a few more tokens and a few more dice in your pool. All of a sudden, you're able to do more and you're able to pull ahead. And it's, it's strangely thematic in that way. It's... Uh, very simple to learn, but there's a lot of depth. And just dice rolling is just a fun mechanic. It's just great to have a handful of these like custom dice and then puzzle over how you're going to spend them. I actually really, uh, really love this game. A lot more than I thought. It is easy to overlook because of its kind of bland art, but I think this is a fantastic game. So I first just want to say, for a small game that doesn't look like much, that's a lot of mechanics. I mean, you not only have your dice rolling mechanics where you're purchasing leaders and replacing dice and having to worry about a famine and a war. Oh, wait, I also have to get these books that I need to worry about. It's a lot of game. It's not the most intuitive one to pick up, and it kind of comes at you real hard and fast. I have a problem with this game. Oh, really? I really do. So in a dice game, of course, everything is going to be based around your rolls. You have to have options to mitigate bad luck in dice games. Because if you're not mitigating bad luck in your dice game, then you are just subject to completely disastrous moments. In most games, they provide a fairly decent range of options to do that. Some games, like a lot of dungeon crawlers, are not based entirely around the dice. You may not move into an area if the dice could completely kill you. 
things like that. There are games like Sushi Roll, where if you have a bad roll, you can just swap dice with other people, and you have a limited number of tokens to do that. So your dice pool becomes the entire board. You have games like Champions of Midgard, where if you're worried about bad dice rolls, just send twice as many dice as you need to, and you're almost guaranteed to win. Nations, if you're not doing well, and the dice are against you, there's almost no play for you. You, you almost can't do anything. And that's what happened to me when we were playing the first time, is that I just I got unlucky, and then because we were playing with four people, this game can be played with up to four people, but it is recommended best for two or one person. So, And I think that it plays a lot into the frustration I have with the game as well, because if you're not doing well, you're not going to be able to purchase as much early on. You're not going to be able to get as many resources. Later rounds, you're not going to be able to get as much either. You're going to be struggling to keep up. Your turn order is going to become messed up because you might not have as much, so you might be going later. And if you go later, because there's three other people, all the good and cheap stuff is already gone, and you might be left purchasing something expensive, which means you only get one thing that turn. There's a lot, like, there's a lot of struggle in just like being behind, but also the only option you have to really mitigate your rolls are A, you have a re-roll, and B, you have these tokens that give you automatic tokens of swords and books and things like that. But you only get those if you purchase the tiles. And if those get taken away by other people, then you don't have that luxury. And rerolls are very sparse. You don't have a lot of those. And there's only a couple tokens that give you more rerolls. And if those also get purchased by other people, then you're left with one, maybe two rerolls a turn. You start with one reroll a turn. And if you use that and you also get unlucky, that entire turn could just be a complete wash for you. So my biggest issue with this game is just that if you're behind and you're not having good dice rolls and you aren't able to get better dice in your pool you're just not it's not going to go well it doesn't get better for you from here and the whole book mechanic where if you get out ahead the more books you get the further out ahead you get and then you get points based on how many people you're ahead of well if you're in last place and you don't get books at the beginning by the time you get the ability to get books the other person's already 15 books ahead of you and there's no point in going for them anyways so you just lost out on easily 20 points over the course of the whole game which in this game is a significant amount of points that's a game winning amount of points so it's it, i mean it's a nice game like it's a fun game but I, I i just feel like this game struggles so much from just the snowbally aspect of it if you get ahead you're you're so far ahead already and your catch up is incredibly difficult, especially playing with more people, because unlucky rolls are almost impossible to deal with. You're so salty because you got beat, like, not just got beat, but got beat real bad. Like, you did terrible in this game. It was embarrassing. Like, we're still talking about it. I did do terribly, but that's sort of the thing is, like, some games you can do badly at and still enjoy, right? Like, there's a lot of games that we play, and that's a big thing we talk about, especially back in our Gateway Board Games episode is, is it fun even if you're losing? And this game's not fun if you're losing. It's not. I'm sorry. It's not a fun game if you're losing. And I, I admit, I am a bit salty about it. But I'm salty because it's a miserable experience if you're behind. I rolled my dice, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm just done. I can't even... I, I roll my dice once, and I can't do anything. Like, if you're not doing well, it's just not a fun game to play if you're behind. That's kind of a problem for me. I think you raised some really good points, actually. And I think a lot of the symptoms are because you played this game only in a four-player game. And I I actually think it was it, it was at its worst at four players. It became more cutthroat because the competition for spaces, for tiles, and the like shop rows were uh, much more fierce. The really good stuff was 
picked up really quickly if you were uh, third or fourth in the turn order in a four-player game. And that can make it really, really difficult to get the stuff you need because the way you mitigate luck in this game is actually by sort of customizing your civilization in the sense of like acquiring either the different type more dice or different colors of dice to get better odds for what you are trying to go after. Like if you really want to compete on that knowledge track, you can get a die that has more books on it uh, and, and go for that. And you can kind of mitigate the luck there. Also, you can get more reroll tokens. If you can get a leader that gives you an extra one or sometimes even an extra two reroll tokens, and that can help you mitigate your pool. But also, and this could be a criticism, the types of tiles that are out are also completely random. So some of the really good stuff just might not even come out. So it is a very, it is a game that is about mitigating randomness. And sometimes your options for doing that are limited. But I do think it's balanced more in a lower player count situation with this. With just two players who are competing over uh, like the knowledge track, for instance. And again, just to make that clear how that works. If you have the most books acquired, you're in, you'll be in first place and you'll score points for every player behind you. So in a four-player game, you're going to score three points every round if you're in first place and you can hold on to that. But in a two-player game, you're only going to score one. And also in a two-player game, theoretically, it would be easier to like surpass the person in front of you and maybe pick up that point in a different round. But if you're in fourth place... <laughs> And you've got to get ahead of three other players. That's a lot of books. And you've got to devote a lot of energy to that. And that can take you from other things. So actually, that's the reason why I think this was a great choice for the two-player episode. Because I actually think two or, yeah, this actually plays solo. So two or one would actually be peak for this game. You're probably getting a, it's more, you're getting better chance of getting good stuff in the shopping phase and the tiles. You can probably compete on that book track a little bit better. But At the end of the day, it's a dice game. It's random by nature. Even the setup of what tiles are available is totally random. So there are going to be times that you play this and it just doesn't work out. But you know what? Sometimes your civilization uh, thrives and sometimes it collapses in ruin. And uh, Ian, uh, your civilization collapsed in a frankly embarrassing way. Uh, But I don't think that's any reason to hold it against this game. It went, uh, it went pretty terribly, I'll say that. I mean, I, I know I'm being a bit harsh on the game, and I think you're, like a lot of my issues do come from the fact that a higher player count is going to lower the availability of mitigation that you're able to get. And that, that's, a huge, that's a huge problem, I think. And they may have been better off limiting it to a lower player count or suggesting a lower player count. But, I mean, overall, like, I mean, it's still... It, I can see the, the design of the game, and it still is a fun game if it's going well and... Like, the mechanics are neat, and I do like the depth of it. I mean, it has that city building, and there's that storyline that you're building in there. Like you said, the sense of progression can be very fun, especially when you see yourself grow from, you know, your set of five very weak dice, and all of a sudden you have up to, you know, seven or eight fantastic options, and you're making multiple moves a turn. That can be really satisfying. I mean, it's it's a fun game, but I guess my warning here would just be if you're going to play with more people, or if that's something that it is hard for you to deal with just the complete randomness that can be there sometimes and the the frustration of not being able to deal with that that's definitely something i would be be wary of because it it, it can be very frustrating to deal with i think the real deciding factor of are you going to like nations the dice game is do you like dice i like dice rolling games even though they can be wildly unbalanced the tension of just shaking up a handful of dice in your hands and chunking them on the table and seeing what you're going to get i absolutely love that uh, it's one of the reasons I come back to Dungeon Crawlers. It's why I love games like Elder Sign from Fantasy Flight, which is a game of uh, trying to defeat monsters in a spooky haunted museum with handfuls of dice. 
it just dice rolling. I love the tension. I love the unpredictability. But yeah, if you want to control your fate in a little bit more uh, direct way, this game's probably not for you. But overall, really, really enjoy it. And if you're looking for something that is has that feel of like a civilization game, but with a little bit of a different flavor, obviously, if you like dice rolling, I'd say give this a look. Don't let the box art, which is kind of uh, has strong uh, civics textbook vibes, don't let it turn you off. There's a good game hide in here. All right, well, that will bring us to our final game in today's uh, Dice Pirates triple header, and that is a game that you probably don't need us to tell you is good because it is a kind of a venerable classic of <laughs> the genre. I think it's currently ranked uh, number 17 overall on Board Game Geek's uh, overall list, so there's really no uh, hiding that this game is great, but it's a game that's relatively new to us, and we want to talk about it a little bit, and that is Seven Wonders Duel. Uh, Ian, you actually brought this over and introduced this to me, and I was thrilled to play it because it was kind of a blind spot. It's like not having read a classic novel and calling yourself a reader. This is a huge blind spot in my gaming career, and I was really thrilled to play it. Why don't you give a quick overview of how this one works? Yes. So Seven Wonders Duel is, of course, a reimagining of the classic and truly amazing Seven Wonders game. Seven Wonders Duel is designed for only two people, a lot like Glasgow. And essentially, you are two cities that are competing to build the best civilization. And to do so, you try to gain scientific might, you try to gain military might, you try to gain production, and and things like this. The game functions as a two-player pyramid solitaire game that operates through three different rounds. All the cards are going to be placed on the table. Some will be face up, some will be face down for that particular era. You have era one, two, and three. And the cards will get consecutively more powerful through each era. You have to begin all the way down the cards that are all the way on top in your classic solitaire fashion. And the cards will either be free or they will have a cost associated with them. And this is kind of the fun part is that you will always take a card. You don't have to build it. You can discard it for coins. You can use it to build one of the titular wonders of the game. Or you can build it to get the benefits of the card. So the game itself, it's a real simple engine building game. You're going to be gaining production. You're going to be gaining cards that let you get more gold if you discard the cards that you draw. You're going to gain buildings that will provide just basic points or you gain military, which will push you further on the military track. All of these different options that you have. There's a lot of different mechanics going on here. And, you know, of course, you're trying to build as many wonders as you can. And it's a really fun, just very simple gameplay loop. What's really interesting about the game is that you actually have three different ways to win. There is, of course, the classic scoring. Most cards will give you a point on on top of it. Some will give you lots, some will give you less, some will give you points that will be based on how many cards of a certain type you have, things of that nature. The other way that you can win is through the scientific victory where there are some cards that give you different scientific symbols. And if you collect enough of them, enough different kinds, then you win through a scientific victory. The final way that you can win is through a military victory. The board itself is a really fascinating little board, and there is a military track that you push towards your opponent's city. And if you manage to push this military track towards your opponent's city, it doesn't matter how far ahead they are. It doesn't matter how far behind you are. If you push it over there, you immediately win the game. And so 
it keeps people from really laser focusing on just building the strongest engine possible. Because if you lose sight of that and you stop focusing on either the symbol, the science symbols or the military, and somebody gets a couple cards in a row, all of a sudden you went from being very safe to having the enemy beating down your front door. So it's a really well-designed game that takes a lot of the mechanics of you know the nation building games and those things and especially the seven wonders game and really distills it into a super fun laser focused two-player game what did you think of this matt well i i mean i love this i think it uh i was like oh yeah this immediately lives up to the hype and its reputation as one of the most balanced and intriguing two-player games I don't have a whole lot to say about it because it is a classic and you don't need us to tell us that it's good. But I think the thing that makes it to me is the military track. That was such a genius addition because if you take your eyes off your military defense for a minute, you can lose the game in a heartbeat. It can become almost impossible for you to push the military uh, advancing thing out of your territory and, and, and push it back toward the enemy if you are not paying attention to the board. So like you said, if you get sort of myopically focused on buying wonders or building up your engine and you're not really taking advantage of the opportunity to push the the little shield back towards your enemy when you can, it can just actually become mathematically impossible for you to win. I think there was a time at least once when we played it where we realized, oh, there's just the, the other person is just going to lose because there's not enough military things available to uh, mitigate this. And I'm going to grab this thing and you're gonna, I'm going to advance it into your territory and you're going to lose or it was the other way around. So the military thing is fascinating. It means that you have to play a very balanced game. You've got to be looking at all the various facets and making sure that you're shoring up your defenses. The only thing that uh, in the couple of few times that we played it, uh, I don't think anybody came close to winning on the scientific stuff. That feels very rare, and I'm not sure how you would pull that off, but that would be really interesting to see if you could pull that off because it feels like if your opponent is just kind of seeing you acquiring the symbols to score a science figure, they can just go for it and cut you off, and then it just won't happen. So that feels like the most unlikely outcome, and I wonder percentage-wise how many games are won on the scientific track versus the military. I do think the scientific track is yet another example of a really well-balanced mechanic, though, because the scientific track, you have a lot of different symbols. And if you gain two of the same symbol, you gain a civilization power. There's five of them that you can gain, and they, they change every game. You're going to swap them out. And they can be pretty powerful. Some of them let your, make your military extra strong. Some of them give you bonus coins whenever you pick up a certain kind. Some of them may just give you flat points. So these can be very powerful. And if you collect enough scientific symbols you know, of a kind, you can keep getting those. And so I think that's another example. If you're going in on those and you're trying to get a lot of those powers, you're naturally going to accrue a lot of the scientific symbols. And I think it's more focused on making sure the other player needs to stop you in what you're doing. It's less about that being a way you can consistently win and more being about if I'm focused on those, you need to actually pay attention to what I'm doing. You cannot focus only on your own game in Seven Wonders. You must also be paying attention to what the other player is doing. Because if I'm going for those, I may not even be trying to win through the scientific victory. But if you don't worry about stopping me from getting it, I'm going to get it. And so I think that's the genius of the game is that even though it is essentially two-player solitaire, you cannot look away from your opponent while you're playing. Otherwise, you will be caught off guard. Yeah, that's really well said. That That is the genius of it. It's a game where you're trying to build your own engine, but you've got to be constantly aware of what your opponent is doing. 
So it's not, uh, there are Euro games that do feel like everyone is just doing their own thing on their player board and it's just a race who can get there first. This isn't a race. This is one where you do have to outmaneuver your opponent. So it's very thinky. It's very intense. Man, I want to play this game now. So yeah, Seven Wonders, Duel. Uh, it is a, as good as uh, the board game geek rankings would uh, lead you to believe. And it is a pretty and it relatively inexpensive game. If you uh, play a lot of two-player games, if you got a partner or a best friend that you play uh, board games with often, I, I think this is a must-have for a two-player, for a person who plays a lot of two-player games. So those were Glasgow, uh, Nations, the Dice Game, and uh, Seven Wonders Duel, our uh, quick breakdown of three pretty darn good two-player games that are worth your time. A good three set of games. I think it's important to have games that are playable with two players or especially lower player counts, especially, you know, I mean, considering the lockdown and the fact that a lot of people are at home, you may only have one other person to play with if, you know, if you have people to play with at all. And so I think it's important to have games that scale down really well because a lot of these big games, a lot of the the really massive ones are just going to not play as well if you have a lower player count. So it's fun to have those. But That is, of course, our discussion on that. We're going to go ahead and move on. And before we get to our outro and details of our giveaway, we are going to go ahead and get to a quick prediction on what's going to happen in the next episode of WandaVision. Before we get into any theorizing at all, we're going to put a spoiler warning up here before this discussion. If you haven't watched WandaVision yet, if you want to find out for yourself, go ahead and skip ahead four minutes to 57 minutes in the time recording. You're going to go ahead and get past our discussion on WandaVision, and we'll get you the information on our giveaway and a teaser for our next episode. Now, on to the discussion. Matt, I love this show. It's so good. I thought it'd be fun to do a little off-topic discussion, do some stuff that's kind of uh, geek hobby adjacent. Uh, we have been like obsessing over this show, trying to puzzle out all its weird secrets for the past few weeks, and I am pumped for the finale. So, uh, all right, so here's what I want to do. I want us to each make at least one or up to maybe three like specific predictions of something that you think is going to happen in the finale, and then uh, which is tomorrow in real time. And uh, then when this podcast is posted on Monday, the world will know how right or wrong we were. I'm going to start out with one prediction. So here's what, I, here's what I'm predicting. I think that the vision uh, will be fully restored to himself, but he will have no memory of his past life and his relationships. I think that will be the tragic ending is that vision will be alive again and he will be good. Although I think that white vision and the white body will be uh, an antagonist in the episode, but by the end vision will be alive again and a good guy and an Avenger, but he will have no memory of his love with Wanda. And that's going to be a uh, dramatic subplot moving forward in all the Marvel media. Oh man, that's that's incredibly sad, Matt. That's so dark. That's what I think is going to happen. Wow. I mean, I, I I thought the same thing. I thought that he was going to be restored, but I really thought he'd have his memories from the the time there in the the show that we've seen. So wow, you you have a heart of stone. I'm oh, just man. going with it. That's my that's my prediction for a sad ending. I think that there has to be some kind of tragic thing in this. I think the tragedy will be that he won't have his memory back. What do you think is going to happen with the kids? Are the are the are, are the twins going to survive uh, or not? I a hundred percent think the twins are going to survive. I, I think it's been in. They've said it. They've said it that she's able to bring things into existence. I think they've been setting them up and, and building them into the characters from the comics for for too long. I think they're going to stick around. What I think, and I, I, 
I don't know if this is going to happen. This is a real long shot, but I think that Pietro actually does he's not just an agent and i think he does have some of the original pietro in him and i think that before he disappears before he dies or whatever happens i don't think he's going to stick around but i think he's going to get a moment of clarity and i think he and wanda are going to get to have like a moment where they sort of get to actually like you know connect and she gets to actually say goodbye to her brother I think I think that's I think that's going to happen. I, I think that's out there. I think that's maybe a long shot, but I, I would love it if that happened. Oh, I, I, I'm trying to decide. Okay, well, hold on. First of all, with the kids, I actually agree with you. I think the kids are going to survive. I think Disney is not so dark that they're going to make us watch these two kids like disappear into chaos magic at the end because w- Wanda has to let them go. Although maybe that's my alternative. My my thought was like, what's the sad thing that's going to happen at the end? I'm fully convinced that there's going to be something sad. And I thought, are they gonna? Is she gonna have to give up her two twins to get out of the hex? And I was like, you know what, Disney's not that dark. So I think the I think the twins are gonna somehow survive, but somehow Vision's gonna be lost, or at least his memory. I think uh, for Pietro, I am perplexed about whether or not his the casting of Evan Peters means that he's actually playing the Fox X Men. It felt like last week's episode kind of totally dismissed that, but I'm starting to think that that's a red herring. And so I'm going to go with this. I'm going to go with a wild prediction that may not come true. I think he'll regain his consciousness about who he is. I think he is the Peter Maximoff or whatever his name is from the Fox X Men movies. And I think this will. I think that will happen. I think that's the lowest probability prediction of anything I've said so far. But I'm going to go with it because it just I can't. Because if they don't do that and they just cast Evan Peters as a kind of weird red herring for the audience, that's actually kind of a douche move. It would be a bit of a jerk move. I, I, I could theory about this all day with you. But at the end of the day, we're already getting a little bit long, so I don't want to spend too much time on this. But man, I'm excited for this episode tomorrow. Yeah, it's going to be great. All right. So by the time this comes out, hopefully you'll have watched it. You'll see are our predictions right or dreadfully wrong. Alrighty, so before we finish up, we're going to go ahead and give you some information on our giveaway. Now, like we said, we're going to be doing a giveaway of Bluffineers by Big G Creative, a game that we both really enjoyed playing. Head over to iTunes, go ahead and leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show, what are some of your favorite parts about it. Just let us know what you're thinking, and we will go ahead and read through all of those. And next episode, we will be choosing one of those at random, and we will let you know if you are winning our giveaway. We will then send you a copy of Bluffineers. So just head over to iTunes, leave us a review, and you may be eligible to win. We, of course, always love hearing from you. Matt, if you want to get in touch with us otherwise, how can they reach us? You can find us on Instagram at Dice Pirates. Uh, just search for us there and uh, give us a follow. Uh, we post stuff all throughout the week. Uh, we don't just do a podcast. We uh, do many reviews of games. We give updates on what we're playing and what's going on in the board game world. I post multiple uh, silly gifts to uh, the Instagram story throughout the week. So if you like a good gift, So come on, give us a follow, uh, message, comment, and uh, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. We'd love to get to hear from you. We're looking forward to getting to interact with you and hear what you think, especially about maybe these games, if you've played them. We're excited to come back to you next time. We have a really interesting episode. Matt, in 30 seconds, tell us what the next episode is going to be about. Well, we're going to take a look at one of my personal favorite publishers of board games, who has been going through an interesting time uh, in the last few years where the company has gone through a lot of transformations, a bit of turmoil. We're going to take a bit of a deep dive into what in the heck is going on with Fantasy Flight Games.
what happened to Fantasy Flight Games. We're going to bring you all of the details on that, and we're going to let you know exactly what's going on with them next episode on the Dice Pirates. We will be here. We hope to hear from you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.